0: Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Welcome, you guys. How are you? Oh, man, I got that janky stand today. I didn't uh, carry my cross down the street, my giant uh, wooden one. Hey, uh, anyway, today uh, I, uh, it finally happened. We've been waiting a long time and now it has happened to me. I have finally gotten COVID. Isn't that exciting? Man, I waited the long. Yes, thank you. Thank you. You know, I notice people don't care about it as much anymore. I, uh, I remember when people first started getting COVID, we're like, all right, we're going to bring them food, but we're going to dress in like full, you know, hazmat suit to be able to even bring it to their door. Uh, we're going to care for them. I got it. And people were like, all right, I guess when are you like getting back to work is basically the response that I got. And so here I am. Uh, I should be through the quarantine. I'm not really sure the calculations anymore. Uh, I think right now I should be out wearing a mask, but they didn't say about preaching to a bunch of people. That was kind of unclear. I know I shouldn't travel outside the country, so I'm not going to do that today. But uh, here we are. Hopefully we'll be all right. It really wasn't uh, all that bad compared to some other people's experiences. Praise God. Uh, We were camping, though, when it hit, which was exciting. Uh, I was able to socially distance pretty easily. Uh, it was about 4 in the afternoon, and I crawled into my like 20-degree sleeping bag. It was like 70 degrees outside, and I was freezing. And I was like, something might be wrong. And then I woke up in the middle of the night, and it was like 40 degrees outside, and I was just sweating like crazy and had to get out of my sleeping bag. And I thought, something might be a little off here. And then I wake up the next morning, and I crawl out, and I do that weird thing where like, you don't know if you're going to throw up or not. This is getting a little graphic. I'm sorry about that. You know, like uh, that thing where you're like, ah, maybe, though, maybe, and you're with some other people. So you're like, I should get away from them. They don't want to see me throw up. And then you do the thing where you stand up, and stand up a little fast, and maybe you're dehydrated. And so I start getting all wobbly, and literally just like crash over into a bush. And I'm just laying there in that bush thinking, something might be wrong. I might, I might actually be sick. And I also thought, while I was laying there in this odd little scrubby bush, how the relationship of the Old Testament God and the New Testament God is not as confusing as people like to think that it is. Uh, now, part of that's facetious, right? I wasn't necessarily thinking that. Part of that is because of the purview of my job, I was thinking that a little bit. I was also in the bush for a long time, actually. It was one of those things where it was like, I'm not going to get back up. I, I think I'll just stay here. We'll see how this pans out. And then I'll emerge from this bush when I'm ready. And so I really, really did start thinking about this. Now, the reason why I bring that up is because I am sure that this week, no matter what was going on, hopefully you did not have the week that I had, uh, but no matter what was going on this week, you probably were not thinking about that, which sort of presents one of the like, weird challenges, I think, of especially preaching straight through the Bible, uh, which is what we do here at Dwell Church. We go uh, verse by verse. Uh, chapter by chapter, sort of walking through uh, the story of God as presented through the Bible. It keeps us kind of honest. Uh, it keeps us sort of on track to talking about uh, the things of God and not just sort of whatever happened in you know the week leading up to this or anything like that. And, uh, but the the sort of like drawback, I think, and one of the challenges is that very often uh, we're going through our normal life and we're thinking and, you know, like grappling with different things and things are popping up in our lives or on the news or whatever and that's what we're thinking about. And very seldom, uh, sometimes, but very seldom does it actually sort of cross where one of like the biggest issues. Uh, that people have with the with life and with the Bible and the Scripture actually sort of corresponds with the week that you just had. Like, does that make sense? That it's kind of like a challenge, and kind of a, a rub that many of us were not thinking like. Man, I wonder what the relationship between the picture of God that we have in the Old Testament and the picture of God that we have in the New Testament is. Like, many of us were not sitting in bed this past week and thinking about that. But odds are, if you've been a Christian for very long, and especially if you grew up in the church, you've probably had this thought before. Like, you've probably grappled with this very idea, uh, and it, in fact, it's one of uh, the top things on the list of people, uh, list of things that people will say they have as objections to the Bible and to Jesus and to Christianity in general. Uh, this one ranks pretty high. This sort of idea that that basically the picture that we see of God in the Old Testament. I feel like if you read the Bible in certain ways, then you would say that maybe uh, the New Testament God sort of presents a different picture. And certainly the most simplistic reading of Jesus compared to some of the things that happened in the Old Testament seem very, very different. We actually had this question uh, come up at our dwell group a couple of months ago. It came up in a passage that we were reading. We were reading through Samuel, First Samuel. And we talked about it for a moment, uh, and we, like, went round and round and kind of, like, arrived at this place, right? We, we arrived at this place. We had sort of, like, fully addressed the question. We'd had a chance to sort of look through the text and actually have each other respond and sort of pour into each other in this moment. And we responded in this place that I think brought us to a pretty satisfying answer but also a very beautiful answer that allowed us to better understand who God is and how he is meant to work in our lives. Now, I could be wrong, but in that moment, in a boring, regular Monday night at my house, I think what could have happened is that we rescued, collectively, someone in that group from some sort of, like, dark deconstructive path that they could have gone on. Now, I'm not saying that all deconstruction is dark. Some of it is good and fruitful, and some of it is the tool of the enemy to lead you away from the faith. But I wondered if that night, if that night uh, something happened in our group as we were really truly wrapping our minds around one of these most difficult questions of the faith, if during that night, we actually saved someone from when a day when tragedy would happen or some sort of supposed Christian would like do or say something, and all of a sudden the faith is shake, shaken. And in that moment, this is the type of question that sort of sneaks in and sort of like grabs a hold of your brain and refuses to let go, and it sneaks in. And in that moment of sort of like doubt, another voice creeps in and says, Yeah, and God is not even the same from the Old Testament to the New Testament. This whole thing is probably made up. I hope that we saved someone from that faith that night, and maybe it was even myself. And I share all that to say that I think that we very often act as if finding the answer to this question is kind of impossible, right? We're like, well, it's just one of those weird things, you know. It's one of those paradoxes of Scripture we don't really understand. Who knows? We'll ask Jesus one day. And I'm saying that Jesus, here in this passage, actually gives us a pretty satisfying and even beautiful answer to that question. This is verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, this should tell us a few things. First, it tells us that already in Jesus' life, people were already misunderstanding him. They already were suggesting that Jesus was coming to abolish everything in the Old Testament. Hence, Jesus's need to to. Uh to clarify and qualify himself. Now, that's amazing if you think about it, right? We got a little bit of, like, narrative, like, and Jesus went around preaching and teaching. But by and large, this is Jesus' first sermon, right? And he's, like, uh, three paragraphs into it. And he's like, by the way, just so you guys don't make think that I'm saying something that I'm not, uh, I am not opposed to the law and the prophets. In fact, I am not abolishing them. I am fulfilling them. When he says law and prophets here, he means uh, the law, which is the Pentateuch, or the first five books of of the Old Testament. And by the prophets, he means people like Isaiah and Ezekiel and those types of books, right? So very much he's covering like large swaths of the Old Testament. He's not referring necessarily to history and wisdom literature, uh, but what he's saying here is like basically all of everything that has come before as a part of the story of the people of God is actually pointing towards and working towards me. I am coming to not abolish all of that, but I am coming to fulfill it. He's letting people know here something really, really important and something crucial about Jesus, that he did not come and start a new religion out of nowhere. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons, right? Uh, First off, it sort of shows, like I've already said, that this Old Testament stuff is not just something that you throw away once you have the New Testament. In fact, the term New Testament Christian or New Testament God don't really, really make any sense. They're at least not in keeping with how Jesus would view himself or how he would view the Old Testament or how he would view God. And second here, he's saying something really, really important, that he's not only going to not not abolish them, he's not not getting rid of them, uh, but here he is saying he is actually coming to fulfill them. He's coming to fulfill them. Now, this word fulfill... Uh, Let's hang there for a second and try and wrap our minds around what exactly that means. Now, the most literal meaning of that word means to fill too full. Like if you were going to fill up your car with gas, you would have fulfilled it and in so doing emptied your wallet. (laughs) Gas joke. I don't know. Uh, It was dumb. So uh, to fulfill something uh, is to sort of fill it up to completion. So the the idea that you would have is like a jar that is like half empty, and you would bring it to, or you would fulfill it by filling it up completely. Now, to fulfill something means making it complete. And if you know much about ancient Near Eastern thought, then you know uh, that completion is not just something that is like, okay, so you have one jar that's half full and one jar that's, you know, completely full, and they're about the same. No, but to complete something is actually to bring it towards perfection. It's actually to make it whole, to make it complete, to make it perfect, uh, to make it more full, this sort of like beautiful, completed kind of picture. And so Jesus here is saying, I have not come to abolish these laws. I have come to make them complete. I have come to make them perfect. I have come to fill them up to the brim. I have come to give them their truer meaning that they were always only pointing towards. They were jars filled with something, and that something was something that was good, right? Uh, They were jars, but they were not completely filled up yet. I have come to sort of fill in that gap. I have come to give them the truer meaning that they were always pointing towards. Now, for the law, this means that Jesus is the answer to the Old Testament law's biggest questions, and it's kind of interesting to think about the fact that, like, generations of people lived under this Old Testament law, and it was good, but it was not complete. It showed people how they were wrong, but not how to get right permanently, only to get how to get right temporarily with God. It showed people that they were separated from God and how they separated themselves from God, but it did not show them how to get completely reconciled to God. It told people about the letter of the law and how to act, but it did not help them to understand the state of their hearts. And Jesus would come to fulfill all of that. As for the prophets, Jesus is letting the people around him know that he is the answer. He said all the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying, hey, you know that suffering servant Isaiah talked about? That's actually me. You know, that cedar that Hosea talked about, if you remember a few uh, months ago when we were going through Hosea, he ends with this beautiful picture of this uh, place where Israel can once again rest in, in God's good shade. And he's saying, hey, that's actually me. I have come to fulfill that prophecy in your presence today. He says, hey, you know that anointed one that Daniel foresaw? That was me. Jesus is saying to the people that are standing around him, to followers of God at the time, I have come not to take anything away from everything you've been doing so far, but actually to fulfill it, to complete it, to bring it to perfection, to give it truer meaning. And I'm doing that here in your presence right now. He goes on in verse 18 through 20 to say this. the Kingdom of Heaven. This is a hard saying. When he says not an iota or a dot, he here is referring to uh, the Hebrew letter Yod, uh, which actually just sort of like looks like a little apostrophe if you've ever seen that. Uh, And so it's like literally the smallest thing that he can imagine. He's saying not even that. It would be like us saying like not even the cross of a T or the dot of an I. He is saying none of it is going to be taken away. But whoever relaxes these things. So Jesus is saying, hey, I'm not taking anything out of the law. I am not removing anything from it, but he says, but whoever chooses to do so, whoever chooses to relax these things and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've talked about kingdom of heaven already. Uh, That is the place where the rule and recognized reign of Jesus lasts forever. And here, just like in the Beatitudes, he is reminding us that the rules in the kingdom of heaven are different. And he sets these three different categories for what happens. And so that's what we're going to sort of work through for the rest of this time today. You can either be least in the kingdom of heaven, you can be great in the kingdom of heaven, or you can never enter the kingdom of heaven. And as you can see, there's only one of these categories that you want to be in. To be called least in the kingdom of heaven, you need to relax the commandments of God and teach others to do the same. Now, a simple solution sort of reaction to this would be don't teach anybody, right? You're like, well, as long as I don't tell anybody else what to do, uh, I shouldn't have a problem with this, right? I'm just living my life, just doing my thing, right? Uh, But I'm not really sure if that's like an accurate way to sort of like skirt past this necessarily. In fact, uh, I think we are all modeling to each other all of the time. You know how Christians typically learn how to be Christians? I think uh, it's probably like a 50-50 experience, right? One half may coming from Scripture and study and prayer and sitting under good teaching and worship, and the other half is from other Christians. This is something that you sort of, like, learn along the way. And honestly, 50-50 might even be generous. You might even learn most of what it means to be a Jesus follower from other people. And if you think... Uh, that you're not actually teaching someone then odds are you're not truly recognizing the way in which there are other Christians around you, uh, maybe they're younger in age, maybe they're younger and how long they've been following Jesus, and they, in watching you are establishing and understanding what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus like think about that wait for just a moment. I know like you know, we don't necessarily like thinking about heavy things like that, but the truth is, no matter how long you've been following Jesus, no matter how long you've been in a community of Jesus, like, you are helping to set the standard for what is appropriate and cool and good and right for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I've actually lived through uh, an important transition in my life that I think actually sort of captures this, and that is uh, in small group, in dwell group, actually. I'm talking about my dwell group a lot today for some reason. But uh, uh, I'm realizing that slowly over time, what has happened is uh, we have started eating real food. Now, when we first started, you know, we were all younger, you know, we didn't know what was going on. And so it was just like a buffet of chips some week, you know, and it was like chip, 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 chip. Everybody was bringing chips. We were like comparing different types of chips. Now, if you are still a chip person in your small group, uh, that is completely fine. There is no shame for being a chip person. Uh, But what ends up happening is over time, Uh, you know, somebody cooks something nice, and then the next week somebody says, you know what, that was a really nice thing, I think I'm going to cook something nice this week. And then uh, somebody the next week is like, I'm going to cook something nice, I'm going to cook something nice. now we walk into our group, and it is just a buffet like it looks like a king arthur's round table kind of feast you know there's usually a pig with like an apple in its mouth sitting there in the center of the table there's all kinds of food it's not like one-upsmanship or anything and believe me uh there are still chip weeks you know like it happens everybody gets a chip week every once in a while but all that happened not because anybody sent out some sort of memo and we were like hey It's better to eat good food and real food. You should cook something. No, what happened is, over time, we started sort of growing together and setting that expectation. Maybe to put it towards something more a little bit real and tangible, think about something in Christianity and the way you're following Jesus, and think about how you shifted your mind on it. Is there something that you used to believe that you don't believe anymore? And ask yourself their your question, did that happen from, like, a lot of, like, biblical research? Did that happen from, like, huge, like, deep dives into systematic theology or anything like that? Or did it happen because the people that you were hanging around started to sort of change the way that you think about it? I think about drinking, actually, because I feel like this is something that uh, many people here might have, like, grown up thinking drinking was not good, it was unchristian, it was not something that you do, and now have come to a different understanding on that. And I think about that, like, like, think about your particular journey on that, and I don't know where you've necessarily landed on that, and that's okay. But I mean, think about, like, how you might have been raised to think about it, or think about the way that you used to think about it, and think about where you are right now. Did, is the gap in between those two places, is it a lot of research? Was a systematic theology involved? Did you go to, like, some Christian library with a bunch of giant books? Did you look up the relative alcohol content of wine that Jesus drank versus alcohol content of today? I don't think so. Most of us didn't do that, right? No, more likely, Christians that you trusted, Christians that you valued their opinion, maybe you saw them drink and slowly your mind shifted on it. And there are probably countless things like this, right? And what that means then is that you, if you want to, so you were on that end of it during that example. Now I want you to sort of flip and put yourself in the other position. That means that you are probably doing this and communicating this to other people around you. I think we don't really have any excuse to sort of say that we are not teaching others. That somehow, as a part of being a part of a community of believers, you are at least part responsible for teaching others what it means to live the Christian life. So that clears up the teaching. Now what about the relaxing? This is the scary ones, right? Or the scary one, right? This is one of those classic not-me kind of sermons, you know? Uh, It's one of those where, uh, like, I imagine most of us are sitting out there right now and thinking, like, yeah, I've heard of those types of Christians that relax the law of God. You know, you might even be thinking, like, ooh, I wonder if it's anybody around me. Hmm, I'm not really sure who it is. I've done the research. I've done a study on this, and the results are worse than you even imagine. Uh, I want you to look to your left. I want you to look to your right. Both of those people, if they are there, and the person sitting between them has relaxed some of the Bible's teaching. Ooh. I don't know. That felt like uh, it felt like one of those like graduation, like look to your right, look to your left, one of these people will be dead or something. I don't know what the I'm just trying to say it's all of us, right? I want you to really, really think, like, this is not one of the, like, like I said, it's too easy for us to be like, no, I'm the biblical one. I know those types of Christians, the crazy ones that make the Bible do and say whatever they want it to. I know those Christians that relax the teachings of the Bible. That is not me. Those people are out there. They are crazy. They are wrong. And I am telling you that more than likely, it is actually all of us. I mean, let's stick with alcohol for the moment since we're talking about it. And we love being free with that one and acting as if the Bible has nothing to say about it. We love sort of like, you know, once we started sort of, if you went on that journey where you started sort of relaxing your thoughts about alcohol and started sort of maybe drinking more and more and more, now it feels as if there is no regulation, no direction from Scripture as to how and when you should drink. When in fact, the Bible is very clear on drunkenness. The Bible is very clear on how unhealthy and unwise it is to drink too much. But I feel like more than often, we live in this very relaxed state where we're like, well, who knows what is too much or too little? Does that mean one drink? Does that mean two drinks? And we kind of live in this, like, sort of uh, intentional, ignorant state. And I think what ends up happening is we've actually relaxed the teachings of God. How about Sabbath? How about that? Who's, who's, whose favorite Ten Commandment is that, right? Like, how crazy is it? I mean, we, you guys, from what I understand... Uh, knowing your lives as well as I do, seem to take the do not murder one pretty seriously. I think I've noticed that among you. I've been living among you long enough now to see that. Man, but how much have we relaxed our, like, teaching on Sabbath? Like, I remember one time when I was in college and just sort of, like, finally learning what Sabbath actually was. I remember, uh, you know, somebody, like, up there talking and and they, like, were really, really pushing us to, to not do our homework on Sunday night. That that was, like, the big takeaway. This is one of the freaking Ten Commandments. And the best you can get out of us is, like, a day off of homework? That's crazy. Man, it's a big deal. And I wonder how much we've relaxed it. Even more so, if this is hard to hear now... And be here for like the next six weeks is all I got to say. And Jesus is about to jump into some stuff where he says, hey, you have heard it said that this is the law. And actually it's a lot, a lot more hard than that because it's not just what you do. It's actually how you think and how you feel about what you do. It's not just whether or not you don't actually kill someone, but if you hate your brother, then you are actually guilty before God. Uh, He says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say, if you lust after a woman, you actually stand guilty before God. Jesus here is going for more and not less. Jesus says that we should be even more righteous. We tend to say, ah, I'm good. We tend to sort of make uh, the words of Jesus and the teaching of the Bible less serious and not more serious. My question for us all right now is, where is the gap here? Because this should be crushing, Right? like If you have something in your mind already, maybe the Holy Spirit has brought something to your mind and to your heart even in this moment, something that you have become more and more flexible on, something that you have been actively relaxing the teachings of Scripture on. And it's easy when these thoughts are separated, right? And you've got, you know, one thought in a box over here and another thought in a box over here. You've got this thought and you're like, Jesus says, you know, uh, we should love each other. So I'm going to try and love each other. And uh, that's going to be my plan for how I follow Jesus. And sure, I'm doing this thing that's not very biblical or I'm like regularly sort of like getting very gray with this line over here. But that is completely separate from what's over here. And I think I'm just going to camp out in this box over here. Like hearing this... Hearing this Jesus that loves us, that saves us, that we have built our lives around, that we were just singing, Jesus, we love you and we can't get enough of you. Hearing this Jesus say this should be crushing to us, but I don't think it is. Why don't we feel the weight of it? <clears throat> I have some theories that I'll run through really quick. The first is that moral relativism has crept into all of our hearts. That little thought that says, well, even if it is a right or a wrong, you know, it's a uh, it's not necessarily like how, how do I know that it's right for me, not right for somebody else or wrong for somebody else or wrong for me? Um, You know, like, I'm not sure if we should have just sort of this universal rule that should be for everybody because people come from different experiences, right? Uh, And what's really, like, tragic about this one is it's a relatively new thought in the course of human history. Uh, Very seldom before all of this would people ask these types of questions, and it's infectious to us. It has infected us much more than you think that it has. The question, is this wrong? That question's been around for as long as humanity's been around. But is there a right or wrong, or are they social constructs? That is a question that is relatively new in the course of humanity. And it is in every TV show that you watch that takes you from, well, that's a bad and evil person to, oh, I understand now by their logic and by the way that they grew up and by the way, you know, their experiences sort of formed them. uh, Maybe it's not that bad. And I'm telling you that that is in our heads more and more and more than we actually think that it is. And it's astounding how last week we can talk about Jesus talking about things that are universal, like salt and light, and we can, like, revel in the fact that he understand, understood human beings even at, like, a core place where we could still understand his examples even 2,000 years ago, and then the very next day be thinking, like, well, I mean, that scripture was from a very long time ago. They're not quite the same. I don't know if it's the same for you and for me. I, I, I don't know. More relativism has crept into our ideas. Another, poor, another reason why this does not crush us is a poor understanding of Jesus and his doctrine of grace. The idea that because Jesus has forgiven us, now we no longer need to think about sin. The ironic thing is that this idea, as is, is in contradiction to more relativism, is as old as they come. Paul was actually writing to the church as it was getting formed, and he had to correct an idea because they thought that if they sinned more and more and more, they could actually get more and more and more of Jesus' grace. He says this in Romans 6, 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Are we we to continue to sin sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And there is this erroneous conception that because Jesus pays for our sins that we don't have to worry about sinning anymore, that that is not something that we should think about, that we should instead just walk around saying, Jesus has forgiven me, and so now I don't even really have to think about what is right and wrong, and that is simply not the case. Otherwise, Jesus would be wasting his very breath right here by telling us that we should be righteous. No, in fact... Jesus freed us from slavery to sin so that we might live the way that he meant us to live, so that we might live righteous lives. But my biggest theory is not that it's some cultural shift, it's not some bad theology. It's actually that we have this little voice inside of us, and we have just turned down the volume One time, uh, a few years ago, we were living in New Orleans and we decided to stay through a hurricane. Uh, we were about seven years post-Katrina, so it felt like, you know what, we'll be all right, right? We had forgotten that lesson already. Uh, no, the real reason we stayed is because we were like poor and we were like, man, I don't know if we can afford the gas to go like crash at somebody's house in Jackson, Mississippi. We're just gonna wait this thing out. Doesn't look too, too bad, right? So we're sitting there in our apartment. We were on the second floor, so we felt safe. And uh, we're sitting there in our apartment, and we're watching the news. And uh, I remember that day very specifically. We woke up that morning. We're like, "Okay, the hurricane's coming." We're sort of, you know, like we're watching the news. We could still bug out if we needed to, you know. So we're watching the news, watching the news. It's on all day. We're watching the hurricane rolling in. The hurricane was making landfall. The TV's on. Dude standing out there in the jacket and he's like, You should get out of here. And he's like literally getting blown away by the hurricane. I never understand that, you know. So we're watching this, watching this, it's on, it's on, it's on. And then later on in the day we're like, Man, that that's been a lot of news. And they're just like, they're like, It's raining, it's coming, right? Like they're just saying that over and over again. So eventually we're like, you know what? What if we like watch an episode of The Office or something? Let's turn off the TV and like actually watch something that we're gonna enjoy. So we flip over and do that. We flip back to the TV just to check. They still say, hey, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. So then uh, we start sort of switching back and forth more and more often. And, and then finally we get to this place where we're just like, all right, we're just going to turn it off. They just keep saying the same thing. A hurricane's coming. That's what we need to know, right? Now, uh, this story, as you might imagine, does not end with us getting swept away and dying, but it very well could have. Like I think about like how foolish that was, right, that we were just sort of like, Ah, we've heard the same news over and over and over again. I'm getting a little bit bored of it. I think I'm just gonna like turn it off. Like, how sad would it be if the moment when the hurricane, you know, became Category Five and we had this last chance to get out of New Orleans, or else bad things were gonna happen to us? We were watching like Michael Scott, you know, and his silly antics or something like that. Now we didn't get swept away, but you understand the risk that we were taking. And I think very often in our own lives when we hear this little voice, and I think very often that little voice is not just some sort of Jiminy Cricket conscience, but it's actually the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin, convicting us when we are living a life that is not righteous. And I'm, I'm worried that we hear it so often that we just sort of like turn down the volume over time. We just sort of... Stop paying attention to it so much. Can I tell you that the risk of this happening is the risk that many of us are taking, many people in broader culture at large are taking. We're taking a huge risk with this. We sort of like slowly turn down the volume on that little voice inside of us that tells us right from wrong. And I believe that it is leading us to ills and problems that are plaguing our society that we don't even see or recognize until they are far too far gone. I believe that fatherlessness is one such crisis. Over the past 50 years, America has drastically relaxed its thoughts on the role of a father, its thoughts on family responsibilities, its thoughts on divorce or even marriage to begin with. So much so that in 1960, only 8% of households Uh, did not have a father in the house. Only 8% of children grew up without a father in the house. And in 2012, uh, that number had gone up to 24%. I mean, we're 10 years out from that. There's no telling what it is now. It means one out of four children in America grow up without a father. According to the National Center for Fathering, apparently it's a real thing, uh, children from fatherless homes are more likely to become poor, more likely to become involved in drug and alcohol abuse, more likely to drop out of school, more likely to suffer from health and emotional problems, boys are more likely to become involved in crime, and girls are more likely to become pregnant as teens. All from the lack of having a father in the home. And here's the, here's the crux of it all, right? Is that nobody woke up and said, well, it's 2022, it's 2012, whatever. Uh, I think it'd be a wise and smart and intentional thing for my kid to grow up without a dad, so I think I'm just going to bug out. Right? That's not what it looks like when we relax the commandments of God. No, what happens are these broader cultural shifts that are happening that all of a sudden start to sort of change our understanding of what it means to be a father. And we sort of take a little bit of the pressure off of it, right? Sort of take, we just relax it just, just sort of a little bit. Like, oh, we don't need those antiquated laws about divorce. We don't need to hear that Bible noise about what it means to be married and to be married forever. We don't need to hear all of that. And so we relax it just a little bit. Well, those ideas are antiquated and it's all about the patriarchy and you don't need any responsibility as a father. That's not something that you need to put on yourself. And so we relax it just a little bit. And that happens over time and it creates these cycles. We take something beautiful like marriage, an institution created by God as a good and healthy and beautiful thing, that was created for our good and for our flourishing, and we start to just relax it just a little bit. Jesus here is saying, Watch out for that volume button. And don't relax these things, don't take your foot off the gas. The pursuit of righteousness is something that never ends. You don't grow out of it. You don't grow past it. Earlier when I was saying this is one of those not me sermons, the biggest problem here is thinking, well, I live a pretty righteous life or like I'm a pretty mature Christian or I've been following Jesus for a long time. No, this message is for each and every one of us here in this room today. Do not relax these. You don't grow past this. In fact, if my experience is any indication My life has not been one where I feel like I am just becoming more and more righteous. In fact, I have lived a life where I feel like I'm becoming more and more aware of my unrighteousness, more and more aware of the ways in which I am living in opposition to God's good plan for my life. Now, from the outside, that may actually appear as if I am sinning less, and, and who knows if I was keeping some sort of massive tally of the millions of times that I have sinned against God. Maybe that number is lessening over over time. But growing closer and closer to Jesus means I am growing in my awareness of the many ways which I am not like him. You don't grow past this. All of us should be regularly taking a hard look at our lives and asking ourselves the question, am I guilty of relaxing this, and am I at risk of being the least in the kingdom of God? Jesus gives us the alternative here. He says this, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's the alternative. That is the call, that is the challenge, that is the opposite of what he is saying here about the people that relax them. He's saying whoever does these things, whoever lives up to these commandments that of God and teaches other people to do the same will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Two dads in the room. I think there are a lot of worse ways to describe the role of a father in a child's life than like this. Being a dad who does the commandments of God and teaches his children to do the same, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is a high bar. This, again, is something that if we are who our fathers should think about this, it should be something that is crushing and challenging. But this is what Jesus calls us to. This is the best target that we have. And I know Father's Day is like a complex thing to even sort of talk about because we have complex relationships with our fathers. And I think you know uh, the relationship that we have with our father, whether that is good or bad, whether he is present or not, is probably one of the most forming and foundational things about us. And I just want you, especially if you have a a sort of dad that you don't have positive memories of, a dad that you have a negative relationship with, and I want you to imagine how even your own life, as good as it may be now, how it would have been different if your dad actually did this. In fact, to all of us who had imperfect dads, imagine if your dad had perfectly embodied this. And that is the stakes that we are dealing with. I know I've been talking about fatherhood, but this applies to everything in our life and in our world. Like, imagine, just imagine a better place. Imagine a world where people were actually obeying the commands of God and teaching others to do the same. Like, what a kinder world that would be. What a more grace-filled world that would be. What a more beautiful world that would be. Isn't that what you hunger and thirst for? Jesus ends with this, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus looks to the people that are commonly pitted as enemies of him uh, throughout the Gospels, especially here in Matthew's Gospels. We've already seen uh, there's sort of this relationship between the scribes, who were the keepers of the law, and the Pharisees, who were sort of the people uh, who were the most righteous modelers and teachers of the law. And he tells them, he looks at these people and he says, unless your righteousness exceeds theirs, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. Now, these were supposed to be like the most righteous people of all. They like measured the steps that they took on the Sabbath, uh, they were the most serious about making sure they were always doing the right thing. People would see them doing the right thing. They were always, like, you know, first in line going into church. They were always the one that were uh, observing religious practices every day. They would, in fact, even not just tithe, just their money or their stuff. They would actually give 10% of their spices, can you imagine, you know, like somebody like saves up and like brings a part of a cow and they like show up and they're like, hey, I'm offering this, uh, you know, to the church, I'm offering this to the synagogue. And then uh, the Pharisee walks up and he's like, yeah, I have a cow and like a little spice mix that go with it. Like I've got a, like a, a full roast kit. You can just put it right into the crock pot, right? That's how serious they were. They weren't just like, hey, I'm just going to bring the cro- the meat, I'm going to bring the spices as well. Like that's some like real kind of serious stuff that they're out there with this little tiny spoon measuring out their cumin to make sure that they are tithing off of it. Jesus quite literally here is setting an impossibly high bar. And ironically enough, he's going to drive it higher and higher and higher and higher over the next few weeks. Saying not even just the letter, but the heart of the law is what God is after. And so his hearers had to be asking themselves... Who can do this? Who can do this? Who can live better than these Pharisees? Imagine yourself as just sort of a regular run-of-the-mill person living in uh, Israel at this time. You're just trying to live your life. You're trying to pay your bills. You're trying to follow God, whatever that means. And then Jesus comes in and tells you all this amazing stuff. He tells you this stuff you've never heard. He tells you this new gospel, this good news that finally fulfills all of your questions that you've had about the law and the prophets. And then he says to you, and oh, by the way, if you're not as righteous as these super-righteous dudes over here, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. They had to be asking themselves, who can do this? And I think if we think about it today, if we think about our own selves, do we think our own righteousness actually exceeds the righteousness of these scribes and Pharisees? I mean, I feel like it would be hard-pressed to just exceed the people in this room. I can't imagine these people that were more serious than we are about our faith. And so when Jesus says this, it has to leave you in a place where you are just sort of begging for an answer to the question, who, who then can enter the kingdom of heaven? Who can be righteous enough to meet this standard? Who can be righteous enough to actually get into the kingdom of heaven? And the answer is there is only one person who has ever actually made this righteousness standard, and it was Jesus. Who can enter the kingdom of heaven? Jesus can. Jesus does. Jesus did. Jesus lives a perfect life worthy of heaven, a life that sets the very bar for what righteousness even is, the only life actually deserving of heaven. He lived a life that doesn't actually separate him from God, but lives in keeping with God's commandments. He lives that life and then dies allows himself to be killed for a crime that he didn't commit, takes on our lives so that we might take on his. Takes on our unrighteousness so that we might take on his righteousness. So to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes and earn entry into this kingdom of heaven, what must we do? We must actually take on the righteousness of someone else. We can't actually get there of our own power. Jesus here is setting up something that he is going to reveal to them later by saying, hey, if you want to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you have got to be more righteous than you could ever be, which leaves us to ask the question, well, how then could we ever possibly attain that bar? And we have tried in many different ways throughout our lives. We've tried to be better. We've tried to be more righteous. We've tried to get as close as we possibly can to the bar. So many of us are living this lie where we're like, man, I'm just going to work as really hard, be as good of a person as I possibly can be and get as close to that bar as I possibly can and hope and pray that it is enough. And at the end of the day, it is not going to be enough. At the end of time, the God of heaven and of earth is going to look on us and he's going to see one of two things. He's going to see somebody who tried their best, failed a lot. He's going to see somebody who tried to live a good life, but still did not live a life worthy of him, a perfect life. Or he is going to look on to us. And instead of seeing all of our unrighteousness, all the ways that we have relaxed his law, all the way that we have run away from him and rebelled from him, he is going to see Jesus. At the end of the day, this is our only and best hope. Jesus here is not saying, hey, you should exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees if you want to. He's saying, hey, recognize this. You're not going to be able to. I am setting this bar so you might actually think hard about the way that you're living and see your need for a Savior. See your need for me to step in to heal you and forgive you of your sins. This then turns everything that we think about righteousness on its head. No longer are we people trying to earn the right to enter the kingdom of heaven for ourselves, but we are people living in gratitude for the God of heaven and earth who had sent his son to die on the cross so that we might be able to enter heaven using his righteousness as our own. And now we live our lives trying to sort of represent being worthy of heaven, trying to live a life of righteousness that looks like we would actually fit into this kingdom of heaven because we know that we are going to consistently fail and we have Failed so much. We live this life having accepted this gift of righteousness, trying to live like we actually belong in this kingdom of heaven, out of gratitude for the God who made it possible for us to be there. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, the takeaway is simple. This is a time, this is a call from Jesus here to think very seriously about how we think about his word and how we think about his law and how we think about living our own righteous lives. And in just a moment, we're actually gonna take communion and that is a beautiful time to celebrate probably every single week that we take it, the forgiveness that Jesus has given us. To think through the ways that we have fallen short of his righteousness and we are desperately in need is good news in our lives. Man, if you are not yet a follower of Jesus, I pray that you feel the awful and terrible weight of conviction of falling short of righteousness. I pray that you feel the pressure and the pain that we have all been a part of causing to ourselves and to others in this world as we continue to live in ways that are not the way that God created us to live. Do you feel the brokenness of this world? Do you feel the brokenness of even your own life? And do you understand and feel the weight of the fact that we are not living the way that we were meant to live? That this is not how the world and our lives were meant to be? That there is another and a better way. Jesus gives us that way. And he offers his forgiveness and his righteousness to you. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how far from God you may feel, God, Jesus, is standing in that gap. He is making the way for you to be reconciled completely and perfectly with your loving Creator. In just a minute, I'm going to pray. We're going to give you some time to respond. You can respond in uh, one of three ways, or any of three ways. Uh, you can respond through the taking of communion. And if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you uh, to celebrate communion. Take the bre- bre- bread that uh, represents the body of Christ. Take the juice, which sep- represents uh, the blood of Christ shed for you. Do it in remembrance of the forgiveness that Jesus gives to you. Taste the sweetness of his righteousness covering over your unrighteousness. We're also going to have some people over here right under the exit sign who would love nothing more than to be able to pray with you. So if you want to talk to somebody about anything at all, please go and talk to them, uh, pray with them. You can share whatever you like as much as or or as little. And then finally, we're going to give you some time. The band is going to, you guys can go ahead and come on up. The band is going to play Uh, and then they're going to lead us in song. You can take this time however you like. The freedom is completely yours uh, to spend this time with God, to actually ask him to examine your life, ask him to examine your relationship with the law, uh, with his commandments. And then when you're ready, you can join us in singing. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for your conviction, even when it's hard. God, we thank you for your word that sees, sees through all things, slices down to the deepest parts of who we are, exposes us for who we really are. We thank you that in our unrighteousness in the ways that we have relaxed your law and the ways that we have thought incorrectly about the way in which you want us to live, God, we thank you that in exposing that unrighteousness, God, it also calls us to the need for you. God, we just pray that you continue to bring us back to you. Let us celebrate and understand your forgiveness. Just feel it in our own lives. Let your righteousness cover us. God, let it cover us like a, like a cloak that stands over everything that we have ever said or thought or done. God, let your righteousness cover over all of that so that we might take it on as our own. God, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you for your death on the cross that we might live forever with you. We love you and we thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, He gives us the gift of community through His church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.